You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So I'll go to our scripture reading this afternoon. 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, 
authorities, and powers in submission to Him. We find our text this afternoon in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Beloved congregation, the Lord Jesus, over the past seven months, since September, the 13 young people who are sitting here up at the front who are going to profess their faith this afternoon, they, they sat in a classroom every week at the high school next door. And over these past seven months, they've done a lot of review. They reviewed a lot of things that they had already learned previously in their catechism instruction. But my hope is that they've also learned a few new things as well. One of the new things we covered this past year was the subject of apologetics. Apologetics, if you define it very simply, is the defense of the Christian faith. Now the Scriptures are clear that the Lord wants His people here in Langley and elsewhere to be concerned for the salvation of our unbelieving neighbors. And then not only to have that concern, but also to do something about it. That means, first of all, prayer. That we pray for God to help us to use existing opportunities in our lives to reach out to those who don't know Christ in a saving way. We pray for God to create new opportunities wherever He may have placed us in our our lives. And we pray for God to give us eyes to see the opportunities. We pray for God to give us strength and wisdom to seize the opportunities and use them. Because we want to be winsome. We want to be persuasive. We want to see people drawn to Christ. We do this because we're thankful people. We're filled with His love. We're passionate about His glory. We long to see God's glory increasingly magnified here and and elsewhere. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I I gave you a, a quote from John Piper from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Maybe you remember that quote. Just the first two sentences. Missions is not the goal of the church. Worship is. God's glory is our highest priority. And with that perspective, we come to realize our need for apologetics. As we live the Gospel, and as we witness to it with our lives and with our words, unbelievers will ask questions. Why why do you believe what the Bible says? What proof is there that there is a God, and if there is a God, that this is His Word? Now, why can't you just uh, take on that way of looking at things that says, well, you know, whatever works for you. If Islam works for you, then fine. Be a Muslim. If Sikhism works for you, fine. Be a Sikh. And if Christianity works for you, fine by me. Go be a Christian. Whatever works is what is true for you. That's a very 
common way of thinking in our society. And so we get faced with these kinds of issues when we talk to unbelievers. These kinds of issues and many more like them. And apologetics is that area of study that gives us the tools we need to answer these questions. And this is something in which we all, young and old alike, have a vested interest. Coming to our text of 1 Peter 3.15 this afternoon, we have this command to always be prepared to give an answer. Literally, in Greek, if we translate it literally, it says, always be prepared for apologetics. And it's striking that this command to be ready for apologetics comes in what we call a Catholic or a general epistle. The Holy Spirit didn't put this command in the, in the letters to Timothy or, or to Titus. And if, if He had done that, then we might be able to say, you know, listen, this whole business of apologetics, you know, that, that's nice for ministers and that's nice for seminary professors or, or maybe even the, the special office bearers, but hey, that's not for me. I don't have to be concerned about that. Well, sorry. The fact is, that the Holy Spirit placed this command in a text addressed to all sorts of Christians. And you may remember from our series on this book last summer that First Peter was originally addressed to Christians who had been dispersed all over the Roman Empire. It's a wide audience of people from all sorts of backgrounds living in all sorts of different places. A wide audience, and it continues to be directly applicable to a wide audience. And so I preach God's Word this afternoon with this theme, always be ready with an answer. And we're going to look at, first of all, the root of our answer, second, the content of our answer, and then finally, the manner of our answer. As we begin looking at the root, we have to remember the historical background of First Peter. Just mention that. Believers scattered all over the Roman Empire, suffering for their faith. Now we read through chapter 3, and I think you can see that theme of, of suffering coming through there. In that context of persecution, Peter reminds his readers throughout this epistle about their identity. It starts right away in verse 1 when Peter addresses them as God's elect continues throughout the epistle with references to the Old Testament, quotes from the Old Testament, paraphrases of the Old Testament, which all remind the readers that they are God's Israel today. And so their identity is in God who created them. Their identity is in God who saved them and in God who renews them. In the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Identity in the face of suffering is the major theme which ties this epistle together. Now as the believers were being persecuted back then, they could, very understandably, become fearful. The verses right before our text imply that this was a real possibility. For example, Peter mentions wives they could become fearful in living out their identity with their unbelieving husbands. Find that in verse 6. And then when we get to verses 13 and 14, we find Peter encouraging these first century believers to be strong and not to be afraid. 
And then when we come to verse 14, we have a quote from Isaiah 8, verse 12. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And actually, the thought of Isaiah 8.13 is also found in verse 15, our text this afternoon. Let's look at Isaiah 8 for just a minute. Isaiah 8, and we can, we can start reading there at verse 11. The Lord spoke to me with His strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. And here comes the lines that are quoted in 1 Peter. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now the context here, is the impending invasion of the promised land by Assyria. In that setting, the majority of the people were filled with fear. But Isaiah the prophet was exhorted by God not to be fearful. Instead, he was to regard the Lord Almighty as holy. He was to fear and to dread God, not the Assyrians. Not, don't get caught up in, in what everybody else in, in the culture and everybody else in the society is doing. Now, if we go back to 1 Peter 3, we find a similar situation. Similar in the sense that there's suffering and that there's hardship. And Peter says, listen, don't fear the ones who persecute you. Don't get caught up in that, that way of thinking. Fear God. Put Him first. And that brings us to the first part of verse 15, the paraphrase of Isaiah 8.13, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. When Peter wrote these words, the Spirit called believers then and it calls believers now to make sure that Christ is recognized as the one who owns them. I am not my own, but belong to Him. Christ is Lord. And what does that imply? Lots of things. It means that our heart and life commitment to Him takes priority over every other relationship in our lives. Nothing and no one comes before Jesus Christ. And that in turn means that nothing and no one comes before His Word. Our commitment to Him necessarily implies a commitment, a total commitment to everything in the Bible. So then, who are we? We are those who by God's grace recognize the Lordship of Jesus. By the grace given us and with thankfulness in our hearts, we follow that command to set apart Christ as Lord. And we live with Him as the Lord of everything in our lives. Recognizing that, we don't have fear. Rather, we look to Christ as Lord, knowing that He is the victorious King. And the, the fact of Christ's victory is alluded to in our text when it speaks about the, the hope that we have, the hope that's in us. 
Now that word hope, that's a special way of talking about faith in 1 Peter. And, and in this epistle, it's often associated with the resurrection of Christ. Why do we have hope for the future? Because Christ is risen. We share in His victory over sin and death, and therefore we have a hope for today and for the age to come. We have confidence in the risen Savior and this hope within us. This is the root of the answer we're called to give. To put it another way, our answer to unbelievers will always be determined by our faith commitment to Christ, our being in Him, our union with Him, our identity. We can't let ourselves be guided by fear, wondering whether our commitment Expressing our strong faith in Christ that, that'll turn somebody off. Or whether it will seem irrational or stupid or whatever else. It's Christ's Lordship that has to be right in the front of our minds. We have to keep telling ourselves, Christ is Lord. His Word rules supreme. And that means that we can never pretend that we're objective or that we're neutral about the claims of the Gospel. Not even for the sake of trying to win somebody for Christ. But sometimes people will do that. They'll act as if they can get on some kind of common ground with an unbeliever and, and temporarily disengage from Christ's Lordship. 1 Peter 3.15 is clear. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Not just sometimes, not just when you go to church or you're hanging around with church people. Not when you feel religious. All the time. Including and especially when you're confronted with unbelievers wanting to know why you believe what you do. We are those who acknowledge Christ's Lordship over every aspect of our lives. Including our thinking and our reasoning. And when we answer, this should always be clear. Not only for us in our own minds, but also for those to whom we're giving the answer. And that brings us to the content of the answer. Our second point this afternoon. Our text tells all believers to be prepared to give an answer. I've already mentioned the word apologetics and the fact that the word in Greek here is, is connected to it. But let's take a closer look and, and parse this out a bit more. The word that's translated in the NIV as answer, the word there in Greek is apologia. And it's related to apologetics. It's also related to the English word apology. But, as you will have gathered by now, it has nothing to do with saying sorry. The Greek word apologia originally referred to a defense, a reasoned, careful defense given in a court of law. It's used in a number of different Scripture passages in the New Testament, particularly, as you might expect, in the book of Acts. For instance, in Acts 26, Paul gives his defense to King Agrippa. And when it says his defense, in the Greek it says apologia. And if you do a survey of the uses of this word in the New Testament, discover that it refers to a well-considered defense guided by the Holy Spirit. 
That's the word apologia. And closely connected with this is the word translated as reason in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now that word there in the original is one that may be familiar to some of you. Logos. Logos is a word often translated as word. It's a word used in John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The logos. But it's also related to our English word logic. And it comes close to that meaning here in 1 Peter 3.15. We're told here to be prepared to give the logic for the hope that we have. In other words, always be ready to give a consistent rationale or basis for our faith in the risen Christ. To explain that. And here we have to go back again. Think back to the root of our answer. You know, because that root has to produce fruit. And it does so in our content. The root of our answer, our commitment to Christ as Lord, demands that our reasoned answer be tied to the Word of the Lord. Think here of the well-known passage of 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And in the context of 1 Peter 3.15, we're talking about the good work of giving an answer to unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, the Bible equips us with the answers we need to give a consistent defense of our faith. The Bible gives us what we need to be able to commend faith in the risen Lord. The Bible is our starting point for defending the faith. Now this doesn't mean that we'll always have all the answers to every question an unbeliever might ask. You might, for instance, be asked that question we we briefly reflected on on Good Friday. How could the second person of the Trinity be abandoned by God? Now let's be honest. Some questions about the faith don't have answers that will always satisfy us, let alone unbelievers. And let's go a step further while we're we're being honest here. Sometimes our, our level of familiarity with the Bible and its teachings... Sometimes that stands in the way of a good answer. And that being so, this is then a call to be careful students of the Bible. You know, sometimes people view profession of faith as being sort of a, an ending, a kind of a, a graduation ceremony. But it is not. In one sense, true, it, it is an end. It's an end to being a member only by virtue of your baptism. But in another sense, it is a beginning. The beginning of life as a communicant member of Christ's church. And in yet another way, it's a step along the journey you've already begun. And that journey is one of being a student. A student of the Word. Till now, you ought to have wrestled with God and His Word, striving to understand His Word for you. But as you go forward from this day, 
that journey continues. And that's not only for those doing profession of faith. That's for all of us. All of us, young and old alike, are called to be students of the Word. This is a lifetime thing. And as we, by God's grace and Spirit, do that, as we work with the Word, we find that we're equipped with the answers we need when we're called to give a reason for the hope that's in us. So brothers and sisters, go to the Word. Open your Bibles and look, for instance, at what the Lord Jesus did and what He said through the apostles in the book of Acts. Many times, the apostles were preaching to the Jews who shared a respect for the Old Testament Scriptures. The apostles themselves were, were Jewish, of course. But at other times, the apostles, and, and especially Paul, they, they preached to Gentiles. And one example is found in Acts 17, where Paul was in Athens. He preached on the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. I'm going to suggest that it would be a good idea to take a look at this passage on your own later on today or maybe further on this week. Do a careful study of it. Look at how Paul addresses the Athenian philosophers. Notice how he works with the Word of God even as he addresses those who are unfamiliar with it. And in verse 28, he seems to quote a Greek writer named Epimenides when he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. This is a clever move on the part of Paul because this is a scriptural concept drawn by Paul from out of the many Old Testament passages which speak about the world and its existence depending upon God's sovereign being. Paul says something similar in Colossians 1.17. He's speaking about Christ there. He says, He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Elsewhere, he says that in Christ are deposited all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he's not just talking about theological knowledge. He's talking about every sort of knowledge you can imagine. The Bible teaches us that apart from Christ and apart from God, there is no basis for life. There is no basis for existence. The truth of Scripture is not something that's just true for us. It is publicly and objectively true. Without its truth, there's no ground or foundation for anything. No ground for science. No ground for language. No ground for mathematics, for logic, for art, for music, for anything. Everything is dependent upon the sovereign and absolute God. Whether people realize that or not, that's another issue. Scripture tells us plainly that God depends on no one, but rather everything depends on Him. Now that's just one brief example of how the Scriptures show us how to give an answer to those who ask a reason for the hope we have. Now I, I could have drawn that out a lot more, work with a lot further. There are some books mentioned in the liturgy sheet that I can recommend to you. I hope that you'll uh, take a look at some of those books. You'll find many good ideas, many good, much good instruction in those books to help you. 
This is simply a taste of what we find when we, we look into the Word. The Word of God has to determine the content of our answer because of our commitment to Christ as Lord. Now, the Word also determines how we go about giving our answer. And that's what we're going to look at in our last point, the manner of our answer. As we uh, think about this, it would be helpful to point out two things that 1 Peter 3.15 does not say. The first thing is that we should never go out looking for arguments about the faith. The Scriptures never encourage us to be contentious and to be argumentative in nature. The Scriptures never tell us to be eager to start a war of words with an unbeliever, to be pugnacious, to be offensive. That's the first thing. The second thing that 1 Peter 3.15 does not say is that we are able of ourselves to persuade unbelievers of the truth of the resurrection or any other part of the Christian faith. The Scriptures never tell us that we are the ones who soften sin-calloused hearts. The Bible tells us never tells us that we are the ones who, who change minds and hearts and turn them to Christ. We can and we must shut mouths. We're called to be God's instruments to silence the mouths of those who, in the words of Romans 1.20, are without excuse or, more literally, without an apologetic. We're called to shut mouths, but God and God alone can open those mouths again to confess faith in Jesus Christ. Only God can persuade and convert unbelievers by the power of His Word and by the working of His Almighty Spirit. So now we can turn to 1 Peter 3.15 and briefly consider what it positively does say to us. It says, first off, that we're to be always ready. That's part of our manner. includes being prepared. You know, there are issues that unbelievers around us are thinking about. We should be paying attention. For instance, just to give one example, The Da Vinci Code, the best-selling book by Dan Brown, That book being read by numerous unbelievers. They're reading it. And some of them are believing what it says. Sometimes even Christians can get confused by the lies and the mistakes in this book. As you may know, this book has also been made into a movie and that movie is scheduled to be released next month. Things are not going to get any better. But we can use this book. We can use this movie as an entryway to have conversations with unbelievers about the truth of the Gospel. Look at this book and this movie as one way in which God is giving us the context in which we can give an answer for the hope we have in Christ. But that means that we have to be reading ourselves. It means we have to be thinking, reflecting, discussing. That's all part of what it means to be ready. Now, some people might say, well, you know, that's all good, but you know, I'm not a reading kind of person. 
I'm not good at studying. Never did good in school. I, I don't enjoy it. Brothers and sisters, reading and studying are not optional for believers. These are not electives in the, in the school of the Christian faith. We are called to be students of the Word, growing in grace and knowledge, and having our identity in Christ. Wouldn't we also want to be busy with His Word? Shouldn't that be a, a desire that we have? The Bible calls us to be prepared. And I know that for some of us, it will be easier than for others. But none of us, not one, can afford to be lazy in this respect. Because, brothers and sisters, what's at stake here? You know, it's not, first of all, about the people to whom you're speaking, or perhaps you're not speaking. The people are important. We do care about them. We love them. But that's not the first and most important thing. The most important thing is the glory of God. We're placed on this earth for Him, to live and work for Him, to show our thankfulness and love to Him for first loving and for first saving us out of His grace. When we get lazy about outreach, when we get lazy about being prepared to give an answer, we are robbing God of glory. Please consider, do you really want to be a thief when it comes to something like that? So be ready always. That's the first thing with our manner. The second thing comes at the end of verse 15, but do this with gentleness and respect. I think it should be self-evident that we're, we're talking about relating to other people. When, when you're giving an answer, doing apologetics, you're speaking, you're dealing with a, a real, living, breathing, feeling person. This person has emotions. You can offend them, upset them. That's partly why this passage speaks of gentleness and respect. The other reason has to do with the second question on the liturgy sheet. And I'll let you think that one through on your own. You can take it home and work with it. That being what it may, let's look at those two words briefly. Gentleness and respect. Now, gentleness, you may remember, is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. It can also be translated as meekness. Now, meekness its a beautiful biblical word. It's the complete opposite of having a violent character and blowing your top all the time at the most insignificant annoyances. A meek person is not easily excited. It's rather humble and subdued. It doesn't mean being a pushover. It implies being both firm and friendly. And so when it comes to giving an answer, we keep our cool and we, we don't blow up in fits of anger when, when someone asks why we're believers in, in Christ and His Word. We don't easily get frustrated. Rather, we're patient and long-suffering. The other word is respect. Here we're exhorted to respect the dignity of the person who is calling us to account for our faith. In practical terms, this means that we never belittle. We never insult an unbeliever. 
We're not called to degrade or patronize unbelievers. We should never treat them as if they're intellectually stupid. The Bible clearly does say that those who deny God's existence are fools. We, we sang that from Psalm 53. But we should keep in mind that this is not name-calling on God's part. This is a moral judgment. Our calling is to show the foolishness of unbelief. Not to engage in name-calling. Not to insult. We have to respect and revere unbelievers as people who are, in, in some sense, created in God's image. Because after all, when it comes down to it, without the grace of God in our lives, they're us. We're a lot like them. Like them, in our old nature, we also have that rebellious, sinful attitude towards God and and our neighbor. We're not better. We're just redeemed. So the task of defending our faith begins with an attitude of humility. It's not a moment to uh, to flex your intellectual muscles so that others will fall down before us and, and fawn over us. We're interested in seeing people fall before the Lord of Lords. And the path to that goal is paved with a gentle and respectful manner. As I said before, there's a lot, lot more that could be said about this subject. We're limiting ourselves today to what we have here in our text in 1 Peter 3.15. The Bible says a lot more elsewhere. And again, I encourage you to get your hands on those books mentioned in the liturgy sheet so that you can truly be ready to give an answer always. Now I'd like to briefly address those again who, who have to give an answer this afternoon. Of course, the answer you give this afternoon is going to be a very simple, I do. That's something different than what we have in our text. Nevertheless, the, the answer you give this afternoon does relate to the answer you're called to give in 1 Peter 3.15. This afternoon, you're announcing publicly your hope in Jesus Christ. You're announcing that you are convinced that your identity is in Him. That you belong to Him you can and will be held responsible to give a reason why you made this public statement today. And brothers and sisters, we've talked at length about that. already mentioned earlier that we did a long unit on apologetics in our class. And I hope that prepared you some. But I can only take you so far. Your calling, God's Word to you, is to continue growing each one of you in grace and knowledge because of and through the power of your union with Him by true faith. As one of your pastors, I'm there to help you in that process. And I'm sure there are others willing to help too. My co-pastor, the elders, the rest of the congregation, you're not alone. And I think you know that. And my prayer, and I think it's fair to say that it's our prayer, is that God will bless you as you go forward in your walk with Him onward from today. May He truly give you all you need. And may He bless each one of us so that we're always ready to give an answer. An answer which will bring Him glory.
Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.